Beatrice Sampson fought with her demons, but crack cocaine kept getting the upper hand. It was no life for her young daughter living with her, mom, a drug addict. So she gave Caitlin to her best friend, Donna Irving, and partner, Warren Johnson, to care for. I had a serious problem, so I made her go to Donna. What's your relationship with Donna? Oh, I thought we were friends. We used to be a while. We were friends for almost 10 years. It was for the best, she thought. The courts agreed until homicide detectives called her to the very apartment building where Beatrice believed her daughter was safe for a year and a half in the hands of best friends. Caitlin was far from safe. A mother's pain. Bernice Sampson has just found out her daughter, seven-year-old Caitlin Angel Sampson, was killed. The year is 2008. Samson has collapsed into the arms of friends at the front door of a Parkdale high-rise where her daughter had been in the care of Donna Irving. Bernice, what would you like to say about uh, your daughter? Well, Caitlin was a wonderful daughter. She was happy. She was doing good. So I thought, now she's not there. She's not with me. I'm Austin Delaney, and for more than three decades, I have covered crime and the court cases that follow for CTV Toronto. Today, I return to that Parkdale apartment with CP24's crime analyst, Steve Ryan, who at the time of this murder was the lead homicide investigator on the Caitlin Sampson case. Steve, this is um, another really tough, tough case, another case of unbelievable child abuse. Yes, this was uh, one of the worst cases, I would say, that I investigated in my uh, 15 years in homicide. And it's because of this case that I have this standard answer when people ask me, and I get this question often, what has changed, when you, what changes when you become a homicide detector for that long, as opposed to before you get into homicide? And my answer is always the same, and that is, we all have this sense of naivety, uh, being naive with regards to evils in the world. And I think it's kind of freeing. And when you're a homicide detective and you see a child on an autopsy table beaten beyond recognition and you have a pathology assistant holding a dead child's hand and saying, whispering to her, you're safe now, nobody else is going to hurt you, that word naive is gone from the dictionary. And that's something I wish I had back because if you witness that, you realize that anything evil in this world is, is possible. Police were called to this apartment around 2.30 this morning. A woman called saying that a young girl had choked on some food and wasn't breathing. But when police arrived, they found evidence that was suspicious and homicide detectives were called in. That homicide detective was Steve Ryan. And this is him addressing the media shortly after Caitlin's body was discovered 13 years ago. The paramedic on scene uh, was able to assess the the situation uh, very quickly and determined that this young girl had been had been uh, dead for, for some time before the 911 call. There were obvious signs of trauma on her body. She clearly had not choked. It was, it was quite clear. It's the work of the devil. That 911 call came at 2.30 in the morning. Donna Irving is on the line, reporting Caitlin is in distress. 
What's the problem? Tell me exactly what happened. My daughter, we were in, I was in the bedroom and she was eating bread and she choked and she said. Steve, the 911 tape, it's, it's chilling. The 911 tape is chilling, agreed. And 911 calls have a, a plethora of uh, evidence on them because they are made in the moment and whether it's real or concocted, there's a recording of that in the moment call. With most homicide investigations, what I try to do is get to that 911 tape as quickly as we can to listen to it, to get some idea or feel for the investigation. And what did you find in this one? Well, let me, let me start by saying we learned that uh, Donna Irving, before she called 911, uh, had a beer, had a shower, then called 911 to report uh, that Caitlin was in distress. On that tape, I, she's crying. I hesitate to use that word because it was all concocted, but she's making it appear as though she's crying. Now, in fairness, she may have been crying because, uh-oh, you know, she may have been crying for her own self-preservation at some point in time because she's now stuck with this body in her apartment and they've got a story in place that's not going to be believable. And that's all, that's all they had. So on the 911 tape, you can hear Donna crying. The uh, dispatcher is instructing her to bring your daughter to the phone. Reason being, they will instruct her on how to perform first aid if in fact she's breathing. Now, oddly enough, Donna makes her own uh, death notification or death declaration right there and then and says, I can't bring her to the living room because she's dead. How did she know she was dead? And she's been dead for a while as far as you're concerned. Yes, I believe she's been dead for a while and this was just at 2.30 in the morning. It was, okay, let's go, here's the story. You say this, I'm going out the back door, being Warren Johnson, and this was all on the tape. It was all preserved on the 911 tape and it's valuable evidence for us. I think she is in the with your daughter right now. No, I'm in the living room. We need to go back where your daughter is. On this day, it is hot and humid. There is little relief by way of a breeze as we stand under the canopy of this Parkdale apartment building where Caitlin lived with her guardians on the second floor some 13 years ago, where she was beaten and starved and hidden from the world, where her seven-year-old body just gave up the fight to live. All right, Steve, let's go inside. Thank you. What's it like to be back in the building? So I haven't been back here since 2008, and it just brings back everything to me, just as if this investigation was starting all over again. There are certain cases that you just never forget. Obviously, this is one of them that has a tremendous impact on, I think, your life in general, um, the after effects of doing this type of work. So being here again is, is uh, it's tough because all those emotions come back, all of those injuries on that child's body, all of what we worried about with regard to this investigation all comes back when you walk through these doors again. How does one handle that kind of stuff? That's a great question and I struggle with it every day because it's easy to think after being exposed to this type of evil that it happens every day to children and anytime you, you'd see a parent, in the, a, a parent in the mall with their kid you automatically think the worst so you really gotta be on top of your own thoughts because you can really um, just think that the entire world is, is a disaster. And if you have got kids, and my kids were fairly young at the time, 
it's easy to smother them as well, thinking that it's going to happen to them. So it's, it's a constant battle to keep life in perspective and then deal with the realities of the evil that goes on. This case has hit the seasoned former cop particularly hard. And it is because the investigators would later learn this horrible case of child abuse could easily have been prevented if someone, anyone, had just bothered to check on Caitlin's well-being. Take me back to that day when you finally come inside here. What, uh, what, what do you see? So when we executed a search warrant on that apartment, there was uh, blood in the bathroom. And as a homicide investigator, you listen to every word people tell you when you interview them. The uh, statement that we took from Donna Irving when she was arrested, um, talking about Johnson leaving the apartment and then her having a shower and blood smearing in the bathroom, which means that something was dragged along the floor that left a blood smear. That, I believe, is where she died, was in that, uh, in that bathroom. In the bedroom itself, there was uh, a book where she was forced to write those lines saying, I'm not a good person. There was a hockey net and there was a bowl of chicken soup. That was it, and that was her room. So where did she sleep? Your, your guess is as good as mine as to um, where that happened. Um, I know she wasn't eating very much because she was very, very thin when uh, she was uh, examined at the autopsy. So the place was, it was awful. Suspicions about abuse bounced from agency to agency with no one doing a real check on the girl. In the apartment, investigators found a note, a line written 62 times. I'm an awful girl. That's why no one wants me. arrived at the apartment, beautiful Caitlin was found wearing dirty shorts and a top covered in dry vomit. It was the keen eyes of the um, ambulance team that came, the paramedics, that said something to this. Absolutely, and, and they're, they're trained professionals and they can detect child abuse, they can detect, detect abuse in general, and I think they suspected right from the get-go that this child did not die as a result of choking on chicken soup. But investigators would only learn the extent of the abuse at the hands of her guardians during the autopsy on the seven-year-old girl. Steve, describe her injuries. Her injuries were uh, quite extensive. Some of the worst I've, I've seen. So she had, um, well, let's start with her hair. Her head was shaved. And we learned later that that uh, was as a result of punishment, something that she had done. So she had beautiful long hair in some of her pictures. So that was shaved off her. She looked like a, an army recruit. Um, again, punishment. Her eyes are both swollen, one eye was swollen shut. She had a swollen ankle, a swollen wrist. Um, her liver had detached, part of it had detached from um, the body because according to the pathologist, the high impact injury, he said he'd only seen that in uh, traffic collisions, never in a child abuse case. So that'll give you an idea of just how forceful that the, the, the assault was on her that it cost her liver to disengaged from her, her body. Uh, she was underweight, she hadn't been fed, and she would have been in excruciating uh, pain, according to the pathologist, and her finger was sliced. It wasn't cut, it was sliced in an odd spot, right at the base, almost near the web of the finger. And when you look at that injury in and of itself, you can't help but think if that was just done as punishment, because it was an odd space place for it to be, um, that the injury to have happened, and it looked very, very painful. So in the end, did she die from one last beating, or what was it that what was it that killed this little girl? 
cause of death was determined to be complications from a variety of different injuries. So basically how it was explained to me was that her body just said, we've had enough and we're, we're checking out. Her injuries are just too severe for her to continue. And she just died from, from all the beatings, all combined, cumulative thing. All the beatings combined was what caused her death. So that was over a period of time and then her body just shut down. So was she in school? Is she was registered in school. She was registered to uh, Parkdale Junior and Senior Public School, which is oddly enough, just around the corner here. Let's, she... let's take a look over there. Okay, let's go. Her building is one of three high-rises sharing a circular driveway with just one entrance for all cars. Steve, is this her school? Because it's at the end of her driveway. Didn't, didn't anybody see anything? That's her school, and the answer to that question is no. Caitlin showed up at her Parkdale school, bumped and bruised several times. Phone calls were made, but even after Caitlin missed 73 days of school, everyone, it seems, took Irving's lies as truth. No one checked on Caitlin. If you saw the extent of her injuries, you would understand why she hadn't been seen by anybody because Donna and Warren Johnson kept her out of view from everybody, so she hadn't been to school in, in, in months. But didn't anyone check up? No, and that's what's so ironic, and that's what actually something I think about till this day. I mean, you look how close the school is to where she lived. Donna would call the school to say, Caitlin's not feeling well today, she fell off her bicycle and sprained her ankle, there was all kinds of excuses, and that was it. It's a 30 second walk, if that, to go bang on her door. Had somebody knocked on Caitlin's door, she would be alive today, there's no doubt in my mind, but nobody checked on her at all. Wherever there was a crack in the system, it seems, Caitlin Sampson fell through it, and there were many cracks. The schools are always the eyes and the ears of the community. If kids are going to school, teachers are those professionals who rely on to report suspected abuse. Well, if she's not seen, nobody knows what to report. In fact, Caitlin's own biological mother was not able to see Caitlin because Donna Irving, who was her guardian, told Caitlin's biological mom, who was her, her friend, that Caitlin no longer wanted to see her biological mom, and that was at around January. Caitlin died in August. And uh, Caitlin's mom said that she didn't dispute that. She just respected the wishes of her daughter, which was that uh, her daughter didn't want to any, have anything to do with her biological mom, and that's how it was left. It was very, very sad. A humble wooden casket bearing the remains of little Caitlin Sampson carried from the Bonar Parkdale Presbyterian Church on Dunn Avenue, leading the mourners the child's distraught biological mother, Bernice Sampson. Tracy Rhoda is Bernice's close friend. When you've given up care and custody, you're thinking that you're doing the best thing for your child in protecting her, and then it ends up that it was probably the worst but how do, you, how do you know this is gonna happen? You have no way of knowing this is gonna happen ahead of time. Caitlin's mother was trying to do the right thing. And her mom's just uh, struggling with crack cocaine the whole time. Yeah, her mom struggled with uh, addiction for a lot of years and that's why she gave her daughter to her friend, Donna Irving and Irving's boyfriend, Warren Johnson. The troubling part about that is Donna has had at the time four kids. Two were already in the custody of the children's aid, and nobody in that court proceeding questioned Donna Irving with regards to her four children or those two that were in uh, the custody of the children's aid. They just signed the papers and turned Caitlin over to these 
two monsters, basically. Caitlin just fell through the cracks. Fell through the cracks, 100%. In a disastrous way. In a disastrous way, suffered a very long time, and nobody checked on her. This is another, another case where a child died, and it was 100% preventable. Donna Irving and her common-law partner, Warren Johnson, were both charged with second-degree murder. Johnson charged after security videos surfaced, showing him leave the apartment building shortly after the 911 call was made around 2.30 in the morning by Irving, saying Caitlin was dead. Both would plead guilty to the charge and are now serving life sentences. And as you're learning this, all this information, that she wasn't in school, that, uh, that her mom wasn't allowed to see her, that uh, nobody checked to see how, how Donna's other children were doing, that they were actually in, in children's aid. When you're learning this, what are you, what are you thinking? It's uh, frustrating. It uh, actually made me nauseous a few times, and that may be a little too much information, but there was a few times I thought I was going to be sick physically sick based on the information I was learning and that was that other people who knew Donna Irving saw some injuries on Caitlin and they did nothing about it absolutely zero and that happens all the time doesn't happens it? all the time people don't say a darn thing because they think that's my problem but it's a child who's relying on all of us to take care of and uh, everybody let her down let Caitlin down everybody On more than one occasion, Bernie Sampson had to leave the courtroom, overcome with emotion. Today's not a good day, and every day won't be a good day. It is a coroner's court where years after Caitlin's murder, an inquest was held into her death. One Donna Irving told police was the result of choking on food. The truth was, Caitlin did not choke to death. Evidence showed the seven-year-old died of injuries caused by blunt force trauma. She had suffered months of abuse at the hands of her legal caregivers. How was it that no one responded? And how was it that the social safety net that was supposed to protect vulnerable children like Caitlin um, had such a huge hole in it. Two children's aid agencies, her school teachers and the principal, and a family court that granted custody to a woman with a history of drugs, prostitution and violence. The inquest was held to get to the bottom of what happened to the seven-year-old child and to prevent it from happening to another child. Court heard that Caitlin's case was repeatedly passed between Native Child and Family Services and the Children's Aid Society. In family court, a judge granted Irving custody of Caitlin without even checking her criminal record and without questioning her many lies. Steve Ryan contacts Ken Richard, the former director of Native Child and Family Services. After this tragedy, what failed and what has improved? And do you think we can prevent this from happening again or do our best with regards to our social agencies? There's a lot more clarity around uh, issues like duty to report. There were a number of instances in the case of Caitlin uh, where uh, somebody should have made a call. And, you know, I'm not going to say who did or didn't because it was so much of it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, stir, stir in you know, a number of other variables, uh, the, the family being quite deceptive with respect to, uh, you know, those they were in contact with, and uh, Caitlin uh, herself uh, being kind of invisible, however that you can manage to do that as a seven-year-old, but, um, you know, a few things, uh, you know, kind of conspired to make the situation uh, 
Uh, and but then, you know it's, it's improved insofar as there's a much more formal exchange of information due to report is clear the technology associated with sharing information is there there's been an integration for example in the database with respect to the child welfare agencies and at the time of Caitlin's death there was a history of three different child welfare agencies involved and they hadn't necessarily communicated very well with respect to what they were looking at so there has been technical improvements I think you know, the duty to report is, uh, for, with respect to all professionals that see children in distress is much more understood and emphatic. Uh, so, so we have a tighter, tighter safety net. That being said, you know, it's probably never tight enough. Yeah, well, well said. And with regards to she was uh, invisible, and I agree with you because nobody set eyes on her. So no child services saw her her school didn't yeah. see her everything was done over the phone people didn't know what they were looking at uh and they mostly weren't looking at anything what i mean is the family was uh, quite skilled at hiding uh the results of their abuse uh because remember that child was in distress for some time prior to her death her murder was just the end of it we are now standing in the shadow of the apartment building that on this sunny day reaches over Caitlin's school on the other side of the street. And I can't help but wonder, what led these two murderers to agree in the first place to take Caitlin into their home? Why did Donna take her in if, if they didn't seem to like her? We never knew that answer. In fact, Donna contacted Caitlin's biological grandmother to say to her, she's not my blood, she's got to go. So why Donna and, and Warren Johnson agreed to keep Caitlin is beyond me. The only thing I could come up with was finances. If they're going to get money for her if they are, are, are taking care of her. There's no other reason why you would take that child in and then beat her like they did for as long as they did without doing anything to help her. What did Warren and Donna work? No, no, they didn't work. No, neither of them, neither of them worked. Uh, they just uh, were home with their two sons, or Donna's two sons, and with, with uh, Caitlin. walk a little further and approach the front doors to Parkdale Public Junior and Senior School, where a memorial sits just to the right of the main entrance. Caitlin's image there to greet students and teachers alike as they enter the building. Look at that, Steve. It's, a, it's quite a beautiful painting, isn't it? It is. It, it, you know, that's heartbreaking. That uh, is the image I have of Caitlin Sampson, is that one in that picture right there, because that's taken from a photograph that I've seen. And I struggle when I think about this case to think about this child like looking like that as opposed to how I last saw her. And that's her head shaved and here she's got beautiful hair, long hair and a ponytail. It's exactly it. Look at her beautiful long hair and that smile and that's not the child that I saw on the autopsy table but this is how I myself, just personally speaking, try to deal with the memories of this, this case by remembering this little girl just as she looks right now. How important is it, do you think, Steve, that the school keeps something like this? Like 2008, that's, that's a lot of years has go, have gone by. And, it's, and we see there's a happy birthday sign there. Uh, there are toys, flowers. Someone's doing that. They are, and I think this should be up forever because we cannot forget her. We cannot forget Caitlin Sampson. We cannot forget how she fell through the cracks, and we cannot let this happen again. And I think it's a... Is it a lot for little kids to understand, perhaps? 
but it's a good teaching moment. So for little kids, in my view anyways, you see this memorial, you might ask your mom and dad or your teacher what it's about, and people, kids can learn if, if there's abuse, you know, what to do, as opposed to not knowing what to do. And it's also right here at the front door. I mean, it's, it's a reminder to those teachers who didn't call and inquire or didn't go over to the apartment and have a look to see if she was okay when all signposts were saying, something's not right here. She's yeah. not showing up for work, for school. That's exactly right. Again, it's a great reminder for that particular reason because what allowed Irving and Johnson to um, beat this child like they did was the fact that nobody checked on her. So had any of these teachers, principals, janitors, I don't care who it was, anybody in the school who realized we hadn't seen her in months and she's always having these unusual injuries uh, appear out of nowhere and this is why she's not in school, if somebody had gone across the street, she would have been alive. And it's literally across the street. It's literally it's across it's the street. It's in the shadow of that building. That's stuck in my mind forever with regard to just how close her place was, Caitlin's place was, to the school. Caitlin's mother now living with the painful decision that she handed her daughter to the murderous couple, believing they would give Caitlin a better life than she could while fighting addiction. I just miss her, that's, you know, I miss her. I'm like any other mother or father, and I miss her. I know I made a bad choice, but I didn't take her life. On my next podcast with Steve Ryan, we revisit the heartbreaking murder of Stephanie Rangel, a 14-year-old girl killed because of a jealous rage by a perceived rival. <laughs>